You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Yes, it does, Scott, and thank you, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, and for Kelly, here's what's on tap on this very busy Monday. The U.S. and Iran battling out in a war of words with both countries making big threats. But will the war of words become a war of war? We'll take a look at the most likely scenarios. The market seems to think it will stay just talk, maybe call this the Teflon market. No matter how tense the geopolitical situation is getting, investors, they don't seem phased. We're going to explore why. And holy schnitzel. Could Europe be the best money-making opportunity in the world right now? That is all ahead. And in rapid fire as well, so much more to come. But we begin with today's markets and Seema Modi with the numbers. Hi, Happy New Year, Seema. Good afternoon. Happy New Year, Brian. We are off the worst levels of the day. In fact, the S&P 500 briefly turned positive. We're back in negative territory. The Dow currently on track for its second consecutive day of losses. Geopolitics, the U.S.-Iran conflict, certainly uh, front and center for investors as they try to assess the risk there. Take a look at energy. That's certainly been a part of the story and a standout for the market today, as well as on Friday. Occidental Petroleum, Pioneer Natural, ExxonMobil, all seeing gains of around 1% to 2%. Interestingly enough, we actually saw oil uh, gain by around, gain around 1% in early trade. But take a look at what WTI crude, negative on the day. Brent crude now up just about 0.16%. And gold, as part of this risk-off tone, is higher by $13. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right, thank you very much, Seaman. We'll see you in just a bit. All right, the Iran crisis continues to escalate following the U.S. airstrike, which killed Iran's top military leader. Iran now says it will abandon the nuclear deal and will no longer abide by any uranium enrichment limits. In the meantime, Iraq's parliament has called for all foreign troops to leave the country. President Trump pushing back, threatening to bomb 52 targets inside of Iran. President also threatening more sanctions against Iraq and a bill for billions of dollars to them if troops are forced out. More on these developments now with CNBC contributor Michelle Caruso-Cabrera and Michael Greenwald, former U.S. Treasury attache to both Kuwait and Qatar. Michelle and Michael, great to see you both. Uh, Michelle, you have been to both countries. What is your likely expectation for Iran's threat of some kind of retaliation? They're going to try to do something, but I think the conventional wisdom that it's going to be something big and dramatic as a show of force, I'm not so convinced. General David Petraeus gave an interview over the weekend to Foreign Policy magazine, and he raised a very big question. Is it possible that this actually works as a deterrence to Iran because they had been doing step-by-step ever bigger attacks against our allies, Mm -hmm. etc., and there had been almost no response from the United States? Have we finally shifted their thinking in terms of what we would do Uh, under President Trump. You know, Michael, there was an attack on the U.S. Embassy, or at least an attempted attack on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. We forget that. We also seem to forget that the Iranian general was not in Iran. He was in Iraq. What the hell was he doing there? Well, Brian, he's been there quite often, and this has been a major departure for U.S. policy to kinetically strike uh, the Iranian leader in general. So I think going forward, this is going to be key for the U.S. away from sanctions, more to strikes, and Iran's going to go through its own inflection point. It's unifying its country. There's a renewed sense of nationalism. So we're calling for a completely new inflection point for both U.S. and Iranian policy going forward. We need to remember, though, Michael, both of these countries are themselves in political disarray. I mean, the prime minister of Iraq basically being impeached, forced out. The energy minister of Iran, he continues to be impeached inside of his own country. There's a a belief that maybe some people are not hardline enough. How does the political calculus internally 
in each of these countries affect what they ultimately may or may not do? Well, there's a renewed sense of nationalism as a currency. I think you've seen that over the weekend. You've seen that with the morning in Iran, that there's definitely a sense that you're seeing the factions all unify around each other. I think in Iraq, Iraq needs Iran for electricity. So it's going to be very important going forward to see how that economic relationship grows and expands and whether the United States maintains waivers for the potential sanctions going forward. It's important to not overstate, though, the vote, for example, that happened in the parliament in Iraq over the weekend, a big show that supposedly they want U.S. troops out. But when you look at how the voting went down, all the Sunnis voted for the U.S. troops to leave. The Sunnis and the uh, Kurds boycotted it. I mean, it's the analog of impeachment here in the United States. It went straight down political lines. They are a country that's very much divided. And to your point also, Iran is constrained by its internal politics. Remember how many hundreds of protesters they killed in November and December due to uprisings because of the economy. By the way, more than 500 dead in Iraq in the latter part of uh, last year because of all the internal uh, protests going on because of their economy. Michael, do you believe the President Trump's threats that they will, that we will potentially do more actual, you know, attacks inside of Iran? Well, I think everyone is calling for de-escalation, but I think this strike is a major departure. And so I think other countries are reading the tea leaves. Was it a merited departure given Soleimani's history? I think Soleimani, everybody is happy he's gone. Uh, the timing and the question and what information was available to the administration, uh, we don't know. But it's important to note that now, without this situation here, this potentially could open in a vacuum because we don't, can't attack ISIS from Iraq if we do leave. That's going to be very important going forward. So it could hurt us in the long run from a counterterrorism perspective. The president threatened to send Iraq a bill if they expel or try to expel our troops. We carry through with that? Donald Trump would, I think, absolutely. After, after everything, every, they, after they everything that was no, of course, but after everything that was done to combat ISIS and retake Mosul and retake the country back after it was falling apart. By the way, an effort we did in conjunction with the Iranians, who did not want ISIS there as well, right? I mean, that's how complicated this part of the world is. Not that long ago, we were allies in that fight, even though they didn't really want to talk about it that much. But those were the facts. The Iraqis do not want to return to a pre-1990s sanctions regime. That would be disaster and a nightmare for them economically. So I think it's important to note that they're going to do everything they can mm -hmm. to hold the line and have a balancing act. But they need that Iranian electricity and the natural gas. Quickly, Michelle, what leverage, if any, does Iran have over us? Leverage. I mean, so I, I, when I, I think of this in the context of how might they retaliate, I think the biggest concern we should have is if they do some kind of cyber attack. I don't think it's going to be some kind of conventional warfare. They don't have the capacity, the capability compared to the United States. It's just impossible. That's why they do proxy wars. We may see more proxy attacks. I wonder about what happened in Kenya in the last 48 hours, if that's related to this. American servicemen right, killed. Exactly. So, but those are the kind of things I think you're most likely to see. And the worst case scenario would be something that really hurts the U.S. economy in a big way. Iran's a patient enemy. And they're going to take a calibrated, long-term approach. They're excellent negotiators, so we should be patient and realize that, a long, that Iran is going to take its time. Okay, Michael and Michelle, great discussion on an important topic. Thank you both very much. Well, despite the tough talk and new threats of violence, stocks remain fairly sanguine. When news of the major general's death broke on Friday, the Dow closed down, but only by 0.8%. The S&P fell as well. The Nasdaq also slipped, but by less than half a percent. Fast forward to today, 
Stocks are well off their session lows. The Nasdaq even wandering briefly into positive territory. Treasuries are in a holding pattern. The world is witnessing the U.S. and Iran ratchet up tensions. The question is this, where really is the fear in the markets? Let's now bring in Art Hogan, chief market strategist at National Securities, and Bob Pavlik, chief investment strategist at senior portfolio manager of Slate Stone Wealth. The VIX is up, Art. The market is down a tad. Right. Where's the real response? Where's the real fear? Well, I think we saw the market react in a natural way with the jubilee concern that we saw on Friday. So a bit of a sell-off on Friday, a little bit of a selling off on, on the open. But I think the market is acting rationally now and saying, we don't know what this brings us. I can tell you this. I'm driving to Vermont to go ski with my kids, and in the back seat it comes a question, what's going on with the U.S. and Iran? And I said... I had, I had that same question to my father when we drove to the exact same ski mountain when I was in high school, and, and that's how long this has been going on. I think the market looks at this and says, yes, geopolitical concerns in the Middle East have been with us for a long time. Very difficult to put that into your economic model. I think the market's going to say, what's been driving the market is still driving the market right yeah, now. Yeah, Bob, would you agree with that? I mean, stocks go up when there are more buyers than sellers. Let's just be clear. Now, they're down a touch to begin the year, but the reality is, is this news going to change anybody's thinking with their 401k, their IRA, their five? 29 plan? Are they going to stop putting money into the equity markets because of this? No, and stocks are not priced on geopolitical events. They're priced on earnings and potential growth for going forward. This has a potential to affect growth only in that it could affect business leaders' sentiment, their, their, their uh, concerns about the general economy. And I, I, you don't see that happening right now. If we have some kind of major terrorist attack or cyber attack that really cripples a country, like Michelle said, then it's another story. But so far, we haven't seen that. I don't think Iran is going to be able to pull that one off. I think they're worried about what Donald Trump's response is going to be. And I think we're probably going to see this sort of fade away in a relatively short period of time. You know, you know, Art, listen, the Iran news rightfully getting the headlines. But there's two other things with regards to the market that may be more important. Number one, that ISM manufacturing number was not good. It was terrible, as a matter of fact, worse than, I think, a decade. And number two is the stock market went up the last three months of 2019 as the Fed expanded its balance sheet. Right. The Fed is running out of fiscal ammunition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that may well be the case. And I, I would tell you this. Manufacturing is the one piece of the U.S. economy that's not working right now. I think that changes a bit if we actually get a phase one deal signed and some uncertainty around manufacturing is removed from the marketplace. So I think that we've, we've got a dichotomy between corporate confidence and consumer confidence. And I think we're going to see some mean reversion of those two things when we remove some of the uncertainty that the U.S.-China trade has brought us. Bob, can stocks go up if the Fed is not only not cutting, but potentially even tightening? And what I mean by that is reducing their balance sheet expansion. I, I think that reduction of the balance sheet really is something that the market is not overly concerned about, not here right now. I don't think the Fed is going to move on interest rates in 2020 at all. I agree with Art. I think what you're going to see is the phase one trade deal obviously gives some some confidence back to business leaders. You partner that up with strong consumer spending, a tight labor market, low interest rate environment, a slightly weaker dollar, and you have a potential for the market to gain between 7 and 10 percent this year. Leave us with some ideas. Bob, I'll start with you. Some of your best ideas for 2020 for our viewers and listeners are what? (laughs) Consumer discretion. You can buy Home Depot right now. A little bit more risk, Lululemon. In industrials, you can look at uh, Union Pacific. But if you really want to take on a little bit more risk, then buy Boeing and GE. And in technology, you buy Adobe on a pullback. Next earnings report, they usually get cautious guidance. Buy Adobe when they get that cautious guidance. And then look at fintech. 
FISERV and Fidelity Information Services. We're going to call you Flash Pavlik there with that Adobe reference. Art, what do you got? National Securities, where are you guys finding opportunity for your clients? 2020, we love financials coming into 2020. We also like the industrial, so we see a pickup in uh, confidence by the corporate, and I think that's going to draw some, out some CapEx spend that we haven't seen in almost a year. And I think that the third is uh, controversial because it's an election year about healthcare, and healthcare away from large cap pharma and facilities, but more in the biotech and med device. I think that the fundamentals look very sound. I think the prices look very attractive, and I think there's going to be a massive amount of M&A activity in 2020. All right, good real-world investment advice, ways to make money. And Art, you look pretty good considering the Patriots are out. Oh, thank you so very early. much for bringing that up. It was time. It was time. <laughs> Art and Bob, thank you both very much. See you soon. All right, a lot more to Covey on this busy Monday for you. Here's what else is ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, crude math. Oil moving higher on the latest geopolitical turmoil. But given the possibility for massive disruption, why isn't it up more? Plus, the battle brewing in the Middle East may not be fought on the ground. It may be fought on a computer. And Smile Direct investors finally have something to smile about. This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back. Well, oil prices spiked 3% on Friday on the killing of Iran's top general. But today, a different story despite continued heightened tensions. Oil actually lower. So let us try to answer the question many are asking. Why didn't oil prices shoot even higher? The reason is basic math. Let us walk you through it. World oil demand right now is about 99.8 million barrels per day. Production is just below that, about 99 million barrels per day, assuming the recent OPEC cuts actually work. Now, that slight gap in demand over supply is the reason that prices firmed up over the last couple of weeks. So if the market is getting tighter, and it appears to be, why not an even larger jump for crude prices on that Iran news? There are three reasons. Let us walk you through them. Number one, there is a ton of oil stockpiled around the world. Depending on whose estimates you look at, there may be two to three billion barrels. The USSPR, 640 million barrels. China, 700 plus million barrels stored. And even Iran holds an estimated 60 million barrels in offshore inventory. The point is, there's a lot of oil out there stockpiled in the world. Two, if prices do keep moving higher, debt-heavy U.S. companies may get greedy and start to produce even more, potentially taking us over 13 million barrels per day in production, adding supply to an already oversupplied market. And three, If there is some kind of Iran-led supply shock, OPEC, particularly the Saudis, could easily make up the gap. The Saudis alone could probably add 2 million barrels per day in just a very short time. And don't forget, Norway, yeah, Norway, they've added 350,000 barrels to the market over just the last couple of months with their new field in the North Sea. In other words, even if Iran does something big to Iraq or maybe even Saudi production, the world right now is likely able to make up for it. The key to higher prices longer term would be both how many barrels are offline and really the key would be for how long. But right now, the crude reality is that the oil math adds up to a fairly stable market. So let's stay on oil and energy and bring in Katie Bay's co-founder of Sand Hill Strategy. Katie, are you surprised that there is not more of a pop in the price of oil? 
Hi, Brian. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think it's an excellent question, and you've just walked through some of the most compelling forces in the market. I think it is a little surprising that there hasn't been more of a reaction, but in some ways, perhaps there's too many things going on, right? Because, of course, the big headline item, the killing of General Soleimani, but then also we had a very interesting, kind of exciting uh, crude report from the EIA last week that showed 11 million barrels taken out of storage, the biggest export number for the U.S in decades. And it was this kind of transformative statement about where the U.S. oil economy is today. But at the same time, really, you know, no outsized reaction in the crude market, I think, as investors are trying to process all this information amidst so many other dynamics that are also going on. Yeah. And and I want to be clear. I mean, we're walking through the math. We are in no way Mm -hmm. minimizing the risk of a heightened escalation. If there is a full-blown military conflict in that part of the world, then all bets are off, correct? Absolutely. And to your point, the scope and the scale of that military conflict is really important. Um, The market for basically five, six years now hasn't priced in a real geopolitical risk premium. But in the event that there is a substantial conflict that takes I would say, and I kind of I agree with your math, I think you have to take more than two, two and a half million barrels offline to really talk about a significant impact to the supply-demand balance. But in the scenario that that happens, you would certainly see the geopolitical risk premium go back into oil commodity prices. Um, but I, I think you're right, too, and, and the yeah. market is reacting to the fact that we're not there yet. Well, I like your numbers. I mean, here's the rea- The Saudis can produce 12 million mm-hmm. barrels a day. They're producing below 10. Let's call it 9.8 million. That's why we go to these OPEC meetings and schlep over to Austria, because they're making these production cuts. If 2 million barrels a day were taken off, let's say some big Iraqi oil field was attacked, just throwing right. that out there, the Saudis and the U.S. and Russia could make up for that fairly easily. In your mind, then, Katie, would it be a combination of the amount of barrels, and the amount of time, because that inventory we talked about would have to be drawn down in a meaningful way. That's right. And, and you, did, you, know, you have seen inventories in the U.S. come down somewhat. They're still very elevated. Inventories are elevated around the world. But you would, you would see that dynamic more acutely. I think there are limits to how much U.S. production can rise. So if I put my commodity analyst hat on, I start thinking about where in the world am I worried about the next barrel of oil? And if I start thinking about, you know, now we're we're talking about a scenario where OPEC cuts are no longer a factor, Saudi production has increased, Russian production has increased, I'm starting to worry about where does my next Middle Eastern barrel come from? And that's really when a geopolitical risk premium becomes a critical factor in the market. How do I compensate that producer for taking this risk? What about the factor behind you? Over your shoulder, we see the beautiful nation's capital. There's a man there, by the way, who is under an impeachment inquiry, but he would like to win re-election later on this year. What is the Trump factor in all of this? Yeah, absolutely. And the Trump factor, as we think about it at Sandhill, first and foremost, is the U.S. economy has to remain strong. If this president is going to get reelected. He'll have to do it by shepherding a strong economy into November of this year. So, and you can look back too. I mean, we love this statistic that no president since the 30s has been reelected on a weak economy. So that's that's his kind of northern star, if you will. Um, this 
conflict with Iran could threaten that, right? A sudden increase in energy prices is a negative for uh, global economic output and certainly even for U.S. economic output. Um, you're looking at the stock market take a little bit of a hit on the back of some of this. So for him to balance, I yep. think the Trump factor here is that the president needs to balance how his foreign policy towards the Middle East interacts with public sentiment. Mm -hmm. uh, Americans don't want to see another war with a Middle Eastern country. Uh, and then how does it interact with economic sentiment? Good stuff. Katie Bayes, Sandhill Strategies. Katie, great analysis. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. All right. Speaking of oil and being timely, tomorrow we are going to be live at the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference down in Florida. And we have got a great lineup and in very important time, the CEOs of Pioneer, Chevron, the COO of ConocoPhillips, and Marathon Oil, one of the first TV interviews and I think more than five years with them as well. So big lineup tomorrow all throughout the day on CNBC at a very important time. Be sure to tune in for that. All right, coming up. They've done it before. The question is, will they do it again? And to what scale? We're talking about Iran and cyber attacks and the U.S. companies and the industries that could be primary targets this time around. Plus, Smile Direct Club soaring 25%, sinking its teeth into America's biggest retailer, why the news is giving the stock such a big boost ahead. And she was at the Golden Globes last night. Today, she is on Power Lunch. We're talking about Gwyneth Paltrow on her new Netflix partnership, the health and wellness industry. We're talking goop with Gwyneth at 2.30. We're back in two minutes. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's now head over to Sue Herrera with a CNBC News update. Sue. Hello, Brian. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Australia's government said it is willing to pay whatever it takes to help communities recover from devastating wildfires. Aerial views from helicopters showing some of the damage. The fires have burned more than 30,000 square miles with at least 25 people killed. The Commonwealth is committing an additional an initial $2 billion over the next two calendar years, starting right now, to support all of the efforts of recovery uh, right across the country. Mercedes-Benz is recalling 750,000 cars because the vehicle's sunroofs can potentially detach and fly off. The cars include the C-Class, the E-Class, the CLK-Class, and the CLS-Class, made between 2001 and 2011. And chaos inside and outside of Venezuela's parliament on Sunday as legislators replaced opposition party leader Juan Guaido. National Guard troops blocked him from entering parliament. Then he tried scaling a fence, but it was blocked with riot shields. With Guaido unable to enter, legislators swore in new parliamentary leader Luis Parra. You are up to date, Brian. That's the news update this hour. I'll send it back to you. Venezuelan democracy in action. Sue, thank you very much. All right, here's what else is coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, Wall Street bets on the ABCs. Smile Direct investors are smiling today. Little Caesars strikes a new delivery deal. And has Europe finally bottomed out? That's all coming up on The Exchange. Betting on the ABCs. Let me see that smile, pizza, pizza, and offering up the kitchen sink. Sounds like Jeopardy categories, but actually it's time for rapid fire. Here with their takes are Contessa Brewer, Robert Frank, and Rahel Solomon. Who is Contessa Brewer? For 400. <laughs> I'll take the She's daily my, 
top three favorite person on the set right now. All right, first up, shares of Google's parent company Alphabet hitting a new all-time high today. Pivotal Research upgrading to a buy rating from a hold, boosting the target to 1650. The math on that is about 18% more upside on Alphabet. The analyst says he's optimistic about Sundar Pichai serving as the new CEO of the whole company. He's also bullish on Google's cloud opportunity and points out the strength in the core advertising business. Rahel, what's interesting about this is last night watching the Golden Globes and everybody's talking about Netflix and Amazon. I'll bet you that Google with YouTube is actually the most watched, quote, network in the world. And it's doesn't seem to be getting a lot of love on that end. It may not. The investor here seems to like Pachai's compensation package, mm. specifically that his compensation, a significant amount of it, is tied to the share, the stock price. So if the stock does well compared to the S&P 100, shareholders do well, and they really like that. Yeah, if he, outperform, makes sense. If he outperforms Robert, he gets paid. Yeah. But, you know, that could lead to short-term gains for long term. You know what I mean? Take it all yeah, now. But every company's CEO is tied to the performance of the stock. You know, the Lyft CEO's performance is tied to their stock. What's that done in the past year? It's down 50%. Plus, you know, Sundar got a $120 million stock grant that vests over time. So all he has to do is stay in the job to get that money. That's not pay for performance. The other thing is they're being very optimistic about what could happen. They're saying, well, there could be more disclosure for investors. There could be a change in philosophy. There could be a change in capital allocation with larger buybacks. But that doesn't mean it will happen. And also, isn't it, the timing on this is odd because we just had the story last week about how the culture has changed so dramatically for Google employees that everybody's miserable. They don't like the way direction that the company is heading. All right, where are we? Yeah, well, you you wonder, I mean, Google, I mean, $120 million. I mean, the company, like 96% of its revenue is just the AdWords business, basically. I mean, it almost runs on automation. It does. It does. It's a great company. It is a juggernaut. None of these these moonshots have worked. And and it's unlikely that even all the talk of regulation and privacy will change any of that. But to tie it all to the alignment of the compensation seemed like thin gruel. Who will be the first company that doesn't have a CEO? It's coming. Mark my Doesn't. words. All right. Wouldn't Next up, here's a reason to grin. Smile Direct Club shares <laughs> soaring today on pace for their best day since its IPO in September. Really the only good day. This after it announced an exclusive deal to launch a new line of oral care products in Walmart stores and online. But will this deal be enough to straighten out the stock down 50% from its IPO? Contessa Brewer, a lot of this is probably just short covering. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got 29% short interest right now in the stock. But look. This could be a real branding opportunity for Smile Direct. They're going to reach an entirely different audience than they have right now for their teeth straighteners. They go in there to the Walmart customer base, and they sell them on maybe slightly more expensive toothbrushes and teeth whitening and all of that. But it's got a different level of aura than Crest or Colgate or Walmart brand. Well, that's, see, that's the risk. I wonder what the intellectual property is with this company. How much protection do they have so Amazon doesn't have a prime straightener? Yeah, but look, this was supposed to be the company that reinvents orthodontry, right? Oh. This is the, that was the whole premise for their valuation. And now we're suddenly going against Oral-B in a commodity electric toothbrush you don't market. Like it. I think it's that is not something I want to pay for. Because right now they're not offering the teeth aligners. They're offering just sort of these complementary products, the teeth whitener a water a generic thing, water pick. water flosser that sort of thing but then they could we could start to see them move into does it work liners, right the water pick this product oh. i've like brown crooked teeth i need there like better te- i need better television teeth does the product work we don't i've never tried it i don't know it, it, these are fake they got knocked out from rugby so these are all They're like nice. bonds what is that they, they, get, they get like discolor <laughs> over time what yeah let's All get a right. extreme close-up no, next I don't. topic <laughs> 
I'll Tom, take Brian's Tom, teeth for 400, please. Nobody wants that. <laughs> daily, daily non-double. All right, topic three. Little Caesars teaming up with DoorDash to offer nationwide delivery. It's the first time Little Caesars in 60 years has offered to deliver pizza. Pizza, pizza. There you go. The company has grown to become the third largest pizza chain in sales. So, Robert Frank, I like that, by the way, pizza, pizza. Yeah. Could this take a bite out of Domino's or Pizza Hut, or can they sort of do it on their own? How about how the CEO said, we just realized people want home delivery. Yeah. Really? (laughs) And we're getting out the horse and carriage, and we're going to make sure they get it. Your pizza by tomorrow or your money back. There there are late adopters to this, but you know what's really interesting? You have to, if you want to get this delivered, you have to order it from their app. And their website, not Grubhub, not DoorDash. And that's really interesting, right? Because a few months ago, we heard Grubhub's executives, I think it was, say that customers are promiscuous yeah. because they're using they move other. Around. I'll tell you what, they though, move around, but you can't do that with I ordered, Caesars. I ordered and they'll I, own the data. I had delivery exactly. last night. It was like an hour and a half late. The food was cold. I'm not going to say who did. I'm not trying to call anybody out. But pizza needs to be hot. Right. And Domino's has sort of perfected that sort of warming thing. You think that going through a DoorDash with pizza is going to work? Well, DoorDash knows how to deliver. They have um, numbers here from a Cowan survey that said that um, 26% of people use online delivery. That's up 10% from the year before. And research by second measure, DoorDash has 37% of the third-party providers when it comes to delivery. So DoorDash ought to know how to do it. Here's my question. If you charge $2.99 for a delivery fee and a service fee of up to $3 on top of that, does it make a $5 pizza worth it? I mean, Maybe. if you're, if you're well, in the market it. for a $5 pizza and you're going to pay double How that. Much, can, we just, can we just be honest? How much of this is all related to just the legalization of dope? What? Huh? <laughs> Cannabis. I mean, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> if, yeah, for you know, sure. if you're Little Caesars and your model had been people driving to go get it. And now you have what? All these states where marijuana is so recreational. So that's why you just Maybe. got home delivery. The point is you need to have home delivery because if you don't, a large person, the shaggies of the world. High people can whole. drive. So wait, do, are you going to expect to see Tilray investing in food delivery? I don't know. I'm just saying, can we, I was just in Colorado. I'm just saying there's a lot of people that appear to enjoy delivery of products. Yes. yes. They yes, can they deliver do. products, but they can't or deliver. Or do I need to just go back to Colorado with that comment? <laughs> no, no we, understand, like, we understand what you're saying. It's yeah. true, though, right? I mean, how much of this home delivery craze has been driven. No, to be fair, I by also people think saying I'm, people, I ain't getting on the roads. I think you'd have to smartly. Compare, don't get on the roads, by the way. To, we'll have to do a study with with pot legal states and areas versus non pot legal. Let's do it. You states. know what? That's Kate let's, Rogers. Let's do that. Let's do Kate, it. We'll, we'll have do to Kate, phone Rogers Kate Rogers. Story. But it's not just food, Does right? Delivery. We're used to getting everything sent to us now. Yeah, I mean, true. I live in the city, and people have their toilet paper delivered to them via Amazon. People have toilet paper. <laughs> <Hopefully, laughs> <quickly. laughs> exactly. I'm hoping it's yeah, you want that quicker than just the pizza the box solution. <laughs> <laughs> is, I mean, any port in a storm, I guess. All right, topic four. New do- My final time hosting the exchange. New documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal show that New York state officials offered $800 million more in incentives than was previously de- disclosed. That included $500 million for a research center, subsidies for job training, and offered to the state to pay 25% of the first-year salaries of some workers. David Faber was very upset about this. It was a good de- debate was. between Kara Fisher and David about whether or not this was an incentive or it was just basically a rebate on taxes that were going to be paid. You're a New York City resident, Contessa, as are you. All three of you yeah. are. How do you feel about this? Well, I'm curious about who was negotiating this, that 
the deal that got ended up being presented to Amazon was $800 million less than what the initial offer was. Like, did Amazon just talk itself out of all these extra grants? In the end, it was $505 million for some to reimburse some construction costs. And of course, we know they walked away from the deal anyway because of the political. Are you blow. glad they're not? Co- well, they're still no. going to. By the way, they're still going to come. That's the thing. Yeah. Amazon, oh, we'll still yeah, do but something. Yeah, it's not not yeah, to the scale. Yeah, I get it. I know. Time. Look, look. These were a lot of the money would have been paid out, provided that they provided the jobs and provided that the taxes came to the coffers. So this was not just like here's your money. We hope it all works out for New York State. Yeah. These were incentives that had to have givebacks in the form of jobs. So I think it's like a, a running back that's got to hit shame. the tar- you got to hit the targets, then you that's get right. the bonus. They that's had right. to hit some that's of right. the targets. That's yeah. right. And to be fair, how many cities were providing really nice incentives to try to lure Amazon? I'm from Philly. Philly was in the running pretty late in the yeah, game. New York was offering six billion dollars. They, you know, now now should you have to pay to come to New York City? New York City really, some would argue, at least Manhattan doesn't need more jobs, doesn't need to create incentives for it. Now, Long Island City, which is where they were going to be, yep. probably could have used some incentives. Probably could. But- what even more is the Hudson Valley, Buffalo, yeah. I mean, Albany. A lot of these areas outside of the metropolitan area are struggling economically and could have used it way more than could, Yeah, City. could you imagine if one of these tech companies or at least half of them would just put their headquarters in Youngstown, Ohio? Oh, That's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the economic boom that would occur, or the government should move some of its headquarters. Anyway. Finally, it was the shot heard around the world last night. Ricky Gervais taking the West Coast elite to the woodshed with his opening monologue at the Golden Globes. Apple roared into the the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. One one to ten, let's grade them. Ten being spectacular. I gave Gervais a the, nine. The joke, well, I thought the monologue, awesome. the he's, monologue he's, in its totality You know why? He funny. spoke to the TV audience, yeah. not to the That's people right. in that room. That's right. Yeah, but to be fair, I thought the monologue was pretty good. That joke in particular, meh. And is Ricky Gervais woke? I mean, come on. How many people in he's that not, audience? I don't think he's saying he's not saying it. No, he's not but trying like, to be. He's he never saying it. But no one in that audience is woke, right? right? So, like, I, let's I, just I, I think, look, comparing it to ISIS, was comparing Disney to ISIS, while hilarious, was, was a little extreme, a little but extreme. I do think it's... Baron about, Cohen's look, joke about Mark Zuckerberg was much funnier. Yeah. And much more accurate. Yeah, and, and by the way, Shasta Baron Cohen, if you haven't seen that whole speech he gave about social media today, you should really see that from about two months ago. I would ago. like to see that. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. But, but I think I his, point, his point about... I, I do think people are tired Sasha Baron of, Cohen's these, speeches. of these celebrities <laughs> who get up and start telling us how to think politically, either side. I just think people are tired of it. I don't like politicians doing it either, for that matter, or my mom. So just nobody, like needs, nobody, needs, nobody needs to tell me what to think politically. But, but well, it turns here's what off, I would right? like. It turns yeah. people off. They get I mad. Think, it's like, don't offend my point of view. Right. However repugnant liked, you may think it is, it's called free speech. I would have liked Ricky to get up and, and say, and by the way, as long as I'm giving you advice on your acceptance speech... Also, nobody cares about the myriad of people who helped you get to get to this point. You don't have to thank everybody right here. You can send them a bottle of champagne later. What you should do is a great monologue yourself as an audition for your next role. Yeah. And then uh, everybody is going to have a next opinions. role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Let's just, is Gervais going to have a next role? I like how you say his name as though it's like with a French accent. 
You Heidi know, Gervais. you know Brian uh, is like Is it Gervais? French. Gervais. Ricky Gervais. Uh, well, whatever. Yeah. It's so much fancier the way you it, do it. It is. I like I, it better I support that way. It. He should change his name. Yeah. <laughs> je pense c'est nécessaire pour français pour... He doesn't think it's necessary to, oui. to, to work with everyone. All right. Thank you, Contessa. Merci beaucoup, Contessa. Derrière. Je vous en prie. Robert Frank. <laughs> Derrière. Derrière. It's like, you're welcome. Okay. Je, I said it the formal I'll way. Take, Je vous I'll en take prie, French for 500. Really, will you? Can you say 500 in French? <laughs> Do it. Rahel Solomon. Yes, thank, so. oh, thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Speaking of that, stock up on schnitzel and hoard the Hermes. Why Europe may be your best investing opportunity right now, or not. Seema Modi up next on that. And take a look at the markets right now. All three indexes, guess what? Their record highs. What Iran tension? The Dow down on Friday? We are back up today on the S&P 500 fractionally, but we are in the green. We're back right after this. Well, no doubt by now you have heard about how well the U.S. markets did last year. But did you know that 2019 was the best year in European stocks in a decade? Safe right. But while many are bullish on the bourses, there are risks on the horizon. Seema Modi joining us now with a look at what could derail the great European rally. Seema. Yeah, you're right, Brian. European stocks on average gained 23% last year. Most strategists expect Europe to be to have an up year in 2020, but Goldman Sachs is only estimating a gain of 8%. Their reasoning is that all the good news around the pickup that, in manufacturing that we've seen, the Brexit risk subsiding, all that is really priced in. Plus, if you look at the growth prospects, Brian, for 2020, Investors aren't salivating over them. 0.7%, if even, for this year. That's expected to rise to 1% in 2021. Additionally, Europe is one of the largest net oil importers, and this increased risk around geopolitics, the Middle East tensions, and what that could mean for higher oil prices. There certainly could be some economic pain that Europe endures. In fact, the European Central Bank put together some analysis, and they found that the impact of a 10% rise in oil prices, you see about a 0.1% GDP growth rate being shaved off of Europe's uh, growth consensus. That, of course, increases in the second year and the third year. Now, if this situation were to play out, then there's that foreign policy discussion as to whether Europe just warms up to Russia. You're already seeing the Nord Stream pipeline, too, being built out between Russia and and Europe. That, of course, is natural gas, but still there is a conversation being uh, taking place around what happens Well, that links Germany to Russia in a very meaningful way from an energy perspective. It certainly does. Russia literally could turn off the lights in Germany because that second pipeline. And if prices continue to rise, you could only see Europe warming up to Germany even further. The State Department has been pushing back, saying and threatening the companies that are involved in the construction of this yeah. pipeline will be sanctioned if they don't uh, if they, they don't stop constructing that. But that is expected to go online by the end of 2020. Definitely one of the most important global infrastructure projects in the world right now. We appreciate you bringing it to us. Seema Modi, thank you very much. All right, on deck. It is the one group of stocks that pros watch perhaps more closely than any other. So up next, the story that ships, trucks, and trains may be telling us right now about the great American economy. All right, welcome back. Are we on the road to recession in freight? Many trucking stocks losing investors' money today after Bernstein downgraded J.B. Hunt on concerns of a freight recession. With just one week until phase one of the trade deal, Frank Holland joining us down with a look 
at how valid some of those concerns might be. Frank. Yeah, you know, Brian, a lot of concerns. So you look at the Dow transports. They're down right around a percent today, and they're on pace to close below their 50-day moving average. Obviously, that's a, a technical indicator, but the real-world indications here, J.B. Hunt, down about 2% today. And J.B. Hunt is the nation's largest uh, container shipper, container trucker, actually, and that's following that Bernstein downgrade. A lot of people concerned just about the future of freight and whether or not a freight recession is going to come up. There was a lot of talk about that last year with the phase one right around the horizon. We haven't heard a lot of talk about that, but with the J.B. Hunt downgrade and the majority of our imports and exports that come in and out of the U.S. coming by container, well, a lot of concerns about what that means for other stocks like a C.H. Robinson, an Expeditors, even a UPS, all of them down today following that Bernstein downgrade and just concerns about transports overall. You know, let's talk about energy because obviously this shift from coal to natural gas, I've got to imagine that that is playing havoc with the rail data. Absolutely. You know, we have rail data for the 52 weeks of the year, sometimes just 53, obviously, you know, with a 365-day calendar. The first 52 weeks, you're going to get the final report next week. Well, you see coal's down 9%, overall down by 5%. So we have a pretty good indicator that Q4 volumes for trains and trucks are going to be lower, maybe even lower than expected. So certainly something to keep your eye on going forward. Important, because maybe it doesn't mean we're slowing down macro. It may just be a shift in that energy stuff. Important points there, Frank. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, still ahead. Iran widely expected to launch cyber attacks in retaliation for the killing of General Soleimani last week. How widespread those attacks might get, we'll tell you next. Welcome back. Iran's top security body vowing, quote, harsh vengeance for the killing of a major general. One form of retribution, cyber attacks. Over the past 10 years, Iranian hackers have proven they can throw a serious wrench into U.S. company operations. In 2012 and 2013, those hackers forced certain bank websites to shut down. In 2014, they attacked the networks used by a Las Vegas casino. And last year, Microsoft said a group tied to Iran tried to hack into the email accounts of U.S. presidential campaign workers, government officials, and journalists. And over this weekend, a group claiming to be Iranian hackers infiltrated a federal library website. Here now to take a closer look at the cyber threat is John Carlin. He is partner at Morrison and Furster and a CBC contributor. Uh, John, what do you think that Iran will do? What do you think Iran is likely to do given their capabilities? Well, as you've gone through, we've already seen what they've done. So they've already attacked the United States over 47 different financial institutions and attacks that took place over a series of years from roughly 2011 to 2015, hitting 47 different banks, affecting hundreds of thousands of customers, costing tens of millions of dollars. That attack was done through the group that uh, Soleimani used to leave, the person who was uh, targeted by the United States and killed. That is the IRGC. And what they did is they used armies of compromised computers, hundreds of thousands of compromised computers, so-called botnets, to attack those websites with requests for information. So many requests for information that they couldn't process the information from customers. And one of those same groups on the side hacked into a dam in in New York. Upstate uh, New York, yeah. yeah. That's terrifying. I mean, you think about the the energy, infrastructure, water, utilities, but we have capabilities not only to defend, John, but we also have our own cyber force in some ways, right? I mean, it's not like they are operating without some kind of resistance from our side. I think you've put your finger on it. What, what the key decision now for the Iranians as they review their strategic options is what's going to happen to us 
if we commit attacks uh, against the United States. And they're giving the full range of options from kinetic attacks, from bombs and guns to cyber. Cyber might be quite tempting for them, though, because the thing about cyber attacks is they can't compete with us on a battlefield, but they can attack our companies as they've already done when they don't like what they're saying. They can attack our energy grid, and then they don't necessarily need to claim responsibility. It can be harder to do attribution. And I think that's probably the key decision right now is what can they get away with without causing a, a response from the United States that's so strong answer, that it wasn't Answer then your it. own question, John. What can they do that would not merit a large-scale response by us? If I'm a company today, I'm thinking through, hey, look, these Iranian groups have been hitting and robbing us. You know, li uh, groups linked to Iran hit, hit HBO to steal movies pre-release, the so-called MABNA Institute. So I'm taking a look at, and the Department of Homeland Security just gave a warning um, about some of the tactics or techniques they've used in the past. So if you're a company today, you can take precautions. I also could see a disruptive event to something like our financial system, hitting banks, hitting use, that doesn't necessarily cause loss of life. And then the third thing I think to watch would be there may be groups that take cyber action in the name of Iran without explicit direction. And those in some ways are the most worrisome because they don't care about deterrence. And so they could do something of a larger scale. You think they will? I think they'll try. Now, the question is whether or not they're sophisticated enough the way some of our other adversaries, China mm -hmm. or Russia, would be. John Carlin, a good analysis there on a very important topic, especially given their vow of revenge. John, we appreciate your time here on The Exchange and CNBC. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Markets doing their best to try to turn around. Amazingly turning positive. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.